Hey everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How are you? All right. So a couple weeks ago, I went to find our eight-year-old twins who were playing in the basement, and I discovered that they had helped themselves to some freeze pops, like those popsicles with the clear plastic wrappers you got to cut the top off of, and then just tossed the wrappers on the floor, because apparently it didn't occur to them at all that the remnants left inside might, you know, melt and leak sticky blue liquid all over the carpet, which is exactly what happened, and I let them know calmly, I'm proud of myself, but I let them know that maybe carpet isn't the best storage place for popsicle wrappers, and that maybe that's a thing you shouldn't have to be reminded of at eight years old. And they agreed with my assessment. They're like, oh, sorry, Dad, and they picked up their wrappers, and I set about cleaning the gross blue junk out of my carpet. Fast forward seven minutes. That's about how long it took me. I went upstairs and found chocolate smeared into the cushions of my couch because it turns out popsicles are not that filling. So they chose a second snack of chocolate muffins. And at that point, I just had to look at them and be like, what part of me cleaning the carpet made you guys think, you know what dad probably wants to do right after this is clean more because he's already got the supplies out and everything. Seriously? And then they just turned on each other. I was like, that's Tommy's muffin. That wasn't my muffin. The crumbs are mine, but the smear is Tommy's. And like, no, Billy did it. And I had to explain, I don't care at all which one of you did the crumbs and which one of you did the chocolate smear. I mostly care that you both thought it was a good idea to eat muffins on the couch. The table is five feet away. It's not a mansion. It's right there. I can, I can see it. Like, Why? And it hit me, Jenny's got a tough job. Like I started thinking while I was scrubbing the couch about how it's a rough gig keeping these kids alive and keeping the house clean. Like that's, that's, that's quite a thing that she does. But I didn't want to give her too much credit. So I was like, I have a hard job too. It's different, but it's also got stressful parts to it. And then I realized everybody does. Just stop being self-pitying. Like, it doesn't matter whether you're a student or a stay-at-home mom or a CEO. Like, honest question, how many people, by a show of hands in here, whether it's schoolwork or work work, whether you're staying at home, part-time, full-time, how many of you have felt stressed recently about the work you have to do? You're not alone. (laughs) There are a whole bunch of recent studies done that tell us Work is one of the most significant causes of stress in the lives of most Americans. Over 80% of working adults report that their jobs are a cause of significant anxiety in their lives. 75% say that their stress level is a three out of five or higher. Over half of working Americans say that work has become so anxiety-producing in the course of the last two years that it's caused relational tension with the people who are closest to them, and almost half say that they have lost sleep in the last year worrying about their jobs. And not only that, but the estimated annual cost to the American economy due to stress-related missed work, medical appointments, and lack of productivity is over 300 billion dollars. That's billion with a B. Every year, 
It's not good. Those numbers weren't good before the pandemic. They're worse now, and they're trending in the wrong direction. This morning, we're finishing up this series we've been in for the past few weeks here at Revision called Paper Walls, where we've been taking a look at some of the most significant sources of anxiety in our world. Some of the places where worry and stress are limiting us and holding us back from the lives God says we were dreamed up to live. And what we've been talking about is the fact that many of these obstacles appear like walls from a distance, but if we get up close and push a little, they're flimsy. They're they're paper walls, and God wants to invite us to break through them. And one of the things that holds us back most and holds back all the people we crash into on a daily basis most is this anxiety over our work. Work feels like an obstacle. But I'm convinced if we learn to see it through God's eyes, if we see the tasks laid out in front of us the way he sees them, we'll come to the realization that work is a paper wall and we'll begin to find peace and purpose in the places we now sometimes find frustration and fear. For a while now, I've been reading, thinking, and studying a lot about why work is so heavy for so many people. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is that a whole bunch of different studies by a whole bunch of different groups have come to pretty similar conclusions. And this isn't necessarily an exhaustive list, but I think you can boil down the anxiety we have about our jobs to to four basic areas of fear. The first one is significance. Am I doing something that matters? Am I making the difference with the hours of my life that I hope to be making? The second one is success. Am I even good at this? Can I do the job that's on my plate? Am I going to be noticed for the work that I'm doing for good or for bad? And the third one is staff. Like coworkers, do I enjoy the people that I'm working with? Is my boss mentoring me or making me miserable? Do I have the right team working for me? And then the last one is stability. Is this job going to last? Can I even trust that I'm going to have this job in a couple years? Am I making enough doing this that I can survive and possibly, hopefully, even thrive? And so these questions we have about significance and success and staff and stability are a deep cause of anxiety in most of our lives. They're real, but God has something to say about every single one of those areas. And so this morning, we're going to kind of jump all around the Bible a little bit differently than we do on a normal Sunday, because I want us to know God's answers to those anxieties. I want us to see what he has to say, because I think seeing work through God's lens is profoundly liberating. And because of that, I just, I feel this burden to apologize to all of you on behalf of the church, because I think the church in America has done a really poor job of understanding and articulating the intersection between faith and work. Like, I grew up going to church, and one of the families that was there, like, eight days a week, right? If the doors were open, we felt like we had to be there, and I got to the point as a teenager where I suspected it was just a scheme to keep us too busy to sin. Like, we're just never not at church, but in my whole life, the only practical application to the 40-hour-a-week, everyday, work-a-day life of an American I ever heard was, well, invite the people there to church, share Jesus with them, and make enough money that you can tithe. Like, that, that's it. And I don't even know that it was on purpose, but so often there was 
no understanding of the way that work and faith actually overlapped with one another. Because like, when it comes to our secular jobs, by our secular jobs, I mean your secular jobs. I don't have a secular job. I'm a professional Christian. I get paid to be good. You're all good for nothing. <laughs> Suckers. But it was like, there's this idea that like our secular jobs are just this pain to be endured. And we can like invite the guy in the cubicle to Jesus and give our money to, to godly causes. And then faith is over here. But I think God actually casts a significantly bigger vision for what we're doing every week than that. And his vision is not only liberating, it's inspiring It gives us significance and it helps us understand that like whatever it is you're doing, whether you're building houses or cleaning houses, whether you're educating kids or cleaning kids' diapers, crunching numbers, answering phones, writing codes, studying your face off at school, no matter what it is, it's holy. God wants you to know that it's holy. Work is meant to be an act of and an opportunity to worship. If you've got a Bible or a Bible handy this morning, you can crack it open to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen or in the Revision app. And if you need one or your kids need one, please pick one up from the Next Steps table in the back before you go. They're free. We love it when they disappear. But I want to dive into Genesis 1 as we begin seeing work through God's eyes this morning, specifically as it relates to this anxiety-producing question we have about significance. Do I matter? Does my work matter? Am I doing anything that makes any meaningful difference in the world? I want to start at the very beginning because I think our questions about significance are functionally identity questions. Like, who am I? And we live in the middle of a culture where it's really easy to wrap up who we are and what we do. To look in the mirror and decide that our identity is primarily defined by the vocational paths we've chosen. But if we're going to be set free from the anxiety that that identity question produces in our lives, we need to understand not just who God is, but who he says we are. And so Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. This is not an insignificant verse for a litany of reasons, but one of the biggest is that God kicks off the book by telling us that he's an intentional, creative, purposeful worker. The very first things we learn about God in the Bible are that he existed before the beginning and that he works. And one of the reasons this is so cool is that Genesis was written to the nation of Israel after they just escaped 400 years of oppression and slavery in Egypt, where they were surrounded by this pagan culture that constantly reinforced the idea that work was a curse, that the gods just foisted work upon humanity so that the gods wouldn't have to work. And in Egyptian society, they used slave labor so that the wealthy and the elites wouldn't have to work either. And this idea permeated the ancient Near Eastern world. In Greece, in Sparta, and Athens, there were actually laws against citizens doing any sort of manual labor. That's the kind of stuff that slaves were supposed to be used for. And into the middle of this type of thinking, God inserts the truth. He reveals himself to us as a God who works and he redeems the entire idea of work in the process. And then in verse 26 of the creation poem, he lets us know about our role in the whole thing. God says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so they may rule over the fish of the sea 
and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. This idea of ruling, that our purpose is to rule, to be fruitful, to increase, to multiply, to subdue, those are not relaxation words, those are work words. Those are purpose words, like work is what it means, or work is part of what it means to be human. I think it's really easy for us to get caught up thinking that work is just the consequence of sin. But that's not what the Bible says at all. Genesis 3 tells us that work being hard, difficult, frustrating, and backbreaking is a consequence of existing in the shattered space we occupy. But it also tells us work itself is a gift. It's part of what it means to live out the image of God that's been placed in us to be the picture for all creation of the king in his kingdom that God dreamed us up and knit us here to be. And we do that in part by working because God works now, then, still, always. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, my father is at work to this very day. Or my, my, my father is always at his work to this very day and I too am working. And so I want us to see this. God is a God of work. And he invites us, he designed us, he hardwired us as human beings to be part of that, which means our work, whatever it may be, whether you're a business person or a stay-at-home parent or a student, whatever it may be, it is significant. Because the tasks you're doing are part of you living out the God image in you. And we can find purpose in it too because God uses our work to bless our world. If I had to come up with a definition of work this morning, I'd say this. Work is effort that creates value. Work is effort that creates value. And you may be in a spot right now where you can clearly see how your work is creating value for the world. You're like in your dream job, you're in a spot where you're called, and you're like, I can see the value. And if you are, praise God for that. Like take a time out today and thank God that you're in a space where you can clearly see how he's working through you to benefit the world. And if you're not, if you're not, and some of you are there, if you're not, then peel back and understand this anxiety about work might just be a paper wall because God might just be working through you right where you are anyway. Because I know, I mean, statistically speaking, right, there are plenty of us sitting in here who are in jobs we hate. Stuck in a space where we're wondering if we're doing what we're made to do, trying to decide what's next. But I want you to know that you know that you know before you walk out of here this morning that no matter what you're doing right now, no matter where you are, God says your work has deep significance if it adds any value to anybody. The great theologian and reformer Martin Luther once stood up in front of a group of people and he read Psalm 147, 13 and 14. He strengthens the bars of your gates and blesses your people within you. He grants peace to your borders and satisfies you with the finest of wheat. And then Luther asked, have you ever thought about how God does that? How he strengthens the bars of your gates or satisfies you with the finest of wheat? With a blacksmith and a baker. That's how he does it. And Luther went on to explain that our vocational paths, whether they're our dream jobs or a step along the journey, our vocations are what he called masks for the face of God. God is working in our working. And it's so cool to understand that because if you're anything like me, it's hard just not to look around and see ordinary. Like an ordinary mom, an ordinary nurse, 
an ordinary teacher, an ordinary engineer, an ordinary student. It's hard not to look in the mirror and see painfully ordinary staring back at you. But the beauty of this is that behind all of that ordinary, there's a God working through you and me, through our ordinary lives to do extraordinary things for people. God blesses the people around us through our work. I mean, we pray, give us today our daily bread. And we thank God when we eat. But do we ever stop and think about how God provides the bread? Through a farmer and a miller and a baker and a truck driver and a shelf stocker and a cashier, among other things. Like our, our, our vocations, our work is a mask for the face of God. And so when we get to this question that haunts all of us as human beings naturally about whether what we are doing is significant, we need to remember that the answer is that God is using our work to add value to people and bring flourishing to the world. So no matter what it is we're doing, in as much as we're doing that, it's significant. What about success? Can I do this well? Am I, am I capable? Will I be noticed or appreciated for the job I'm doing? Well, that's a big question on all of our minds. It's a, it's a constant source of anxiety in the area of our jobs, our families, and our schoolwork. And sometimes we feel overwhelmed, like, I, I can't. I don't think I'm good enough. The task feels too big for me. It feels like too much for me to accomplish. But I think what's liberating about seeing work through God's lens is that it shifts the question for us at least a little bit. Because we begin to realize that God isn't measuring us the way the world around us is measuring us. He doesn't play on the scoreboard of our society. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. And Paul's saying pretty plainly here, the people around you, your bosses, your friends, your coworkers, they aren't the ones who get to decide whether you're successful or not. You got a boss that's higher up the ladder than the one you're working for, and you're working for a reward from him that's bigger and greater than your paycheck. So Paul says, whatever you're doing, aim your work toward the glory of God because that's what it's about. Do your best out of love for God and love for the people around you. And no matter what the American economy decides that's worth, that's what counts in God's economy. Mother Teresa once said it like this. It's not about what we do, but how much love we put into it. And so, like, even if you hate your boss, and I know you do, don't raise your hand, though. Don't. Like, some of you do, and don't raise your hand, because what if your boss is here today? You've been inviting that pagan forever, and she's sitting right behind you, and then you raise your hand, and it's just, it just gets, it gets ugly. Like, don't do it. And honestly, full disclosure, mostly I just don't want to look out and see Jeff and Jeremy and Courtney. Like, just don't. No raised hands. But I know some of you hate your boss. You can still do excellent work even if you're working for somebody you don't like. We can still do brilliant, successful work for an audience of one, even if God is the only one who sees because we know he sees. The great writer and thinker C.S. Lewis once said, there are valleys on this planet undiscovered by human eyes that are filled with beautiful flowers. Why? Because God sees, and God, or God creates, and God sees things for his glory. And so I want you to know, like whether you're getting recognized for the job you're doing or not, whether you feel successful or not, when you do the best that you can, God sees and he is glorified. So whatever you do, whatever you got in front of you tomorrow, 
in this season. Do your best for God's glory. And what about that anxiety-producing area of staff? Those working alongside you, above you, or beneath you in the org chart. What if those relationships aren't easy? What if the people you're working with are just the worst? Like, I think we got to have an honest moment. Some of us are stuck in organizations where everyone else is a huge turd, except you. I don't know how that got there. Wow, this is an ironically mistimed slide. We got to get that off the screen. <laughs> Oops. But anyways, sometimes that happens, right? What do you do then? What do you do if you're stuck working with people you don't like? Well, here's the beauty of it. When we start to shift our understanding of work itself and begin to, to see it the way God sees it, this incredible thing happens where other people occupy a totally different space in our personal motivational structure than they occupied before. Because we live in the middle of this radically individualistic society where we look at the people around us and we think, well, everything's about me, the world's about me, the world tells me it's about me, so they must exist for me. It must be all about me. And we see coworkers, whether they're above us, beneath us, or alongside us in the org chart, as tools to be leveraged for our own glory. And then it creates inevitable tension at work, at school, at home, when other people dare to show up and live like we're not the center of the universe. Like, ah. Oh. How dare they? But when we see things God's way, we kind of shift him to the center of our motivation, him to the center of our work. And when God's at the center of our work, our focus turns outward. And we're able to say, instead of how can I use this person for my glory, how can I, be, for God's glory, bless this person and participate in human flourishing. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul tells the Corinthian church, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul's throwing down the gauntlet to the church. He's saying, we all got a debt that we'll never be able to repay. We've all been given a gift that, that we couldn't possibly hope to earn. And so maybe, just maybe, we ought to treat the people around us the way we've been treated. Even if they're difficult to love, we can love them anyway. Even if we don't feel like serving them, we can serve them anyway. And when we begin to look at our coworkers, at the staff around us through the lens of the love of Jesus we've received we can actually step into God's invitation to just be a blessing in their world. You guys, the way that you work, the way that you love the people you crash into every day, even those that are hard to love and even those that are difficult to love, makes a gospel kingdom difference. If you can walk in tomorrow and say, I'm going to treat people the way Jesus treated me, you can point people toward the love of Jesus. And I know there are people sitting in here who never once have thought, that your work could be used to draw people to Jesus. You're like, yeah, I'm not a pastor though. Like, Mike, your job, like if I was doing ministry, if I was a pastor, like I could make a gospel difference with my work. And I don't know that I can add value here and there, but I don't think I can actually like lead people to Jesus in the way that I'm, I'm working. I'd have to be a pastor to do that. And I think that's exactly wrong. The complete opposite is true. In the book of Acts, we read about the early church. Like this, this Jesus movement, he just ascended into heaven and everything's exploding. It's growing all the time. And throughout the course of the book, there are 40 miracles that take place. 40. One happens inside the church. 
And it's just because Paul gave a sermon so boring, a kid fell asleep and crashed out of a window. Like Paul, the greatest Christian that ever lived, he literally bored a kid to death. I was thinking about that this week, and I realized, you know what, the next time you're in here and you're like, it's so boring, I've got to listen to Mike, Ugh, I think you should just be grateful I haven't killed you yet. <laughs> That's on the table. It's in the Bible, okay? Paul did it, and then he felt so bad that he healed the kid. That's the only miracle that happened in the church. 39 of them happened in the marketplace. That number's beyond explaining away as just some sort of weird anomaly. What it means is that those of you who've been called into a vocation in the business world, the real world, are in an incredible place every single day of your lives, or at least four or five days a week, to see the outpouring of the Spirit of God. Whatever you're walking into tomorrow, you're walking onto fertile ground for a miracle. Believe it. God wants to work in you and through you to point the people around you toward his love because you got a chance, right, to interact with people who aren't going to interact with me, who'd never darken the door of a church, to occupy spaces I can't occupy, to have conversations pastors will never have. You have a chance to change the world in ways that I never could. Billy Graham predicted that the next great awakening for Jesus in the United States would happen in the workplace. And good news, that's right where almost everyone in this room is going to spend 40 to 60 hours this week. I just think this area of anxiety about staff, the people you're working with, it's never going to go away because people are people and people are human and people are messed up. But when we, we start to see people the way God sees people, we realize that the people around us are thirsty for the love that lives in us. And as we realize that, we find a mission to live out where we once found a mountain to climb. And last, but certainly not least, this worry-producing, fear-initiating area of stability. Am I okay? Is this job going to last? Is my company going to survive? Am I going to make enough to, to provide for my family and and thrive, like, what's going to happen? And I wish, just as much as you do, that I could stand up here and tell you, yeah, it's going to be fine. Don't worry about your company at all. <laughs> we all know that's not true. Borders is dead. Yonkers is dead. Kmart is dead. Toys R Us is dead. <laughs> Sears is dead. Blockbuster is dead. Target is mostly dead. I said that just for the 80% of women who just, uh, <laughs> it's true though, it's hemorrhaging. <laughs> you know what else is? Kohl's. So that one's just for my wife, wherever she's at. They're, I hope you don't like either of those. And I don't know if you guys have paid attention to the news at all, but the economy is not exactly nailing it. And so if your identity and your security and your future are tied up in the job you have or the company you work for, you probably should be scared. But the good news is God says that's not where your security and your stability and your identity are found. They're found in something else entirely. And we do a whole series about this, about identity. We have and, and we, we will. But I think Jesus sums it up pretty beautifully as he's talking to this giant crowd of people who are living in a time of even deeper economic uncertainty than the time we're living in right now with less safety nets and more reason to be afraid. In chapter six of Matthew, Jesus looks out at the crowd and he says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life 
what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry saying, what should we eat or what should we drink or what should we wear for the pagans run after these things? And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We don't always know how. We don't always know what. We don't always know when. And sometimes it isn't what we wanted, when we expected it, or or the way we expected it. But we know God will provide. He promises us again and again and again that we are his children Children he loved enough to step out of the fabric of eternity into the human story and give his life for, and he will provide. That's a promise he has never failed to keep. And when he is our security, then any fears we have about our security in the future just become paper walls, obstacles that do not hold us back any longer. And I think it's just, it's easy, you guys. It's easy in this culture to allow work to become this crushing space of anxiety in our lives or school to become a crushing space of anxiety in our lives. And studies bear out the fact that many of us in this room have done exactly that. But my prayer this week for all of us, like whatever you got ahead of you, whether it's a week full of big tests at school, big projects at work, big piles of laundry, still always never ending, just keep on going. Like whatever it is you have to do this week, whether it's what you really even wanna be doing or not, I pray you'll see it through God's eyes as a chance to be fully alive by living out your created, creative purpose, by putting an effort that creates value for you and the people around you and points our world toward the love of Jesus as you do the best you can for the glory of God. And I think if we do that, work will cease being this source of anxiety that limits our lives. We'll be liberated from the fear and the frustration, from the worry and the weight of it all. And we'll find that no matter what it is we're doing, whether the world says it matters or not, we have purpose and we have meaning because God is working through our work, not just to provide for us, but to provide for the people around us. That's what work is all about. It's what we were made for. It's not a curse. It's not an obstacle. It's not a wall. It's a gift God gives us. The gift of purpose and meaning as we join him in writing a better story for the world. That's what work is all about. And I just want to thank you for doing it. Again, no matter who you are or what you got on your table, whether you're a student or a stay-at-home parent, or a CEO, or anything in between, thank you. Thank you for doing things that matter to the heart of God. One of my favorite quotes of all time, Luther was, was talking about vocation, and he said, look, 
the maid who sweeps her floors can do so for the glory of God, not because she sings a Christian hymn while she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. And the Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not because he knits little crosses into the shoes, but because he makes good shoes. God is interested in good craftsmanship. Like, look around you at the world God made. He's obsessed with beauty. Thank you for doing things that add value and beauty to the world. It matters. you pray with me? Well, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way that you love us. Thank you for the way that you give us purpose and you invite us into the future that you're creating and the story you're writing for our world. Every single one of us has been crushed, frustrated, anxious about the tasks that are out ahead of us, about the work we have to do or the schoolwork we have to do. Lord, I just pray that we could begin to see all that stuff through your eyes that we could begin to see it not as a curse but as an opportunity to add value to the world in ways that bless people. And would you just remind us that anything we do that adds any value matters to your heart. And would you bless us as we walk back out into the spaces we'll occupy this week. Bless us with the opportunity to point people toward your great love as we work to add value and beauty to the lives of the people around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.